Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me is Adam Pawatic. We are happy to be back at the Toronto Real Estate Forum, November 30th, 2022. We're back and, we're, and it's busy. Feels like normal, right, Frank? Like this is... There's a buzz. Feels like normal. Yesterday at the chair's reception, it was packed. It felt like it was pre-COVID. It, it was a wonderful. Not a mask in sight. We'll see how we all feel Friday morning when we wake up. But yeah. for now, let's just, <laughs> let's just enjoy the moment. Our guest today, of course, Frank Magliocco from PwC. This is an annual thing. I can't remember how many years now we've been doing this. We've been talking about your report, Merging Trends in Real Estate of 2023. Yes, welcome. I guess it's my fourth year on it, so uh, yeah, here. Right. But we've been doing this for for a number of years with my predecessors involved. But yeah, our report's been around for forty four years. That's how long well, that's we been. been doing the podcast for that long. <laughs> so. But yeah, no, it's always fun chatting with you guys. So interesting year to try and do some forecasting. I am glad. I think I think you do most of your polling in the in the summer. Is that uh, is that right? Yeah. This year we started our interviews. So we did actually did six hundred interviews both in Canada and the U.S. And we had close to fifteen hundred online surveys as well signed. All happened around June, July, and that's important because you got to understand that context in terms of when we carried those out. But we were fully into interest rates and inflation and recession coming, all of that. Because it'd be unfortunate if you spent all the effort in February of this year and then the world shifts, you know, <laughs> in a March. later. Yeah, exactly. Just this sunshiny uh, report coming out that everything's gonna be great and uh, then it moves. So you are, you are capturing the current sentiment. And, you know, in all reality, while everything did move in March, it's been the same recurring topic since then, which is you know, the ones that I just rhymed off. So I think this will be, even though we're, I guess, a few months behind the work you did in this, the market sentiment would be very accurate. I mean, other than I guess there's more uncertainty then than there is now, but there's still a ton of uncertainty. So, I mean, if you have an uncertainty barometer, it's relatively the same. Where can people find it? Because maybe we've got listeners that are going, okay, you know what? Let me open this thing up and go link, hang link out. Link in the show it. notes. Link in the show notes. We'll definitely put it there, but pump up the website too. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. So, if you if you want it, it's a download, free download. Go to the PwC website and just type in ETRE 2023. And you've got a video there and you've got digital. And if you really want to, you can download a hard copy as well. Okay. And we do this every year, but again, assuming not everybody listens to every single episode, which they should, why don't you do just your survey process just really quickly so people understand how you're kind of obtaining the data. And who's answering it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So as I mentioned, we did, so this year we did 617 face-to-face interviews with C-suite executives right across Canada and in the U.S. Blake Hutchison just walked by and gave Frank a wink, by the way. Yeah, yeah, because we always interview Blake. He's always got awesome, (laughs) awesome feedback for us. He's, He's really good. And then we do surveys as well. And and really interesting, it's funny, I start off my presentation when we do it at the uh, ULI launch of our survey. I said, if you take a look at the people that we interview, that we put their names on the back of that report, I said, if those people can't tell you what's happening in real estate, I'm not sure who can, because it's all the individuals that are actually making the trends. And they know what's coming. And they know what's coming. They're they're guessing what's coming, but they're guessing more informed than we are. Absolutely. And then backing it up with billions of dollars. So you better hope that they've got a strong... Follow the uh, cash flow, right? (laughs) Follow the cash flow. Let's jump into the meat of it. You know, I went through the report. I've got a bunch of notes, but you know that document way more intimately than I do. So let's talk about the parts that really jumped out to you. You know, I think what was interesting, and I think you touched on that, Adam, was that, you know, we had, you know, we're on this amazing run in real estate, right? We had 
Capital was plentiful, rents were rising, valuations were great. So everyone was in an awesome spot. And then come March, as you said, everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket with interest rates, you know, spiking, inflation higher than we've seen, you know, in a long, long time. I think it was the 80s the last time that high. And so really had a significant reset in terms of people's perspective on real estate. And that was probably what came out. And when you take a look at that kind of background and what people were looking at the future, there were really three broad things that kind of resonated and came out during that report that I would want to share. The first and foremost is that we kind of entered into this price discovery stage. And really what that meant was there's a whole bunch of factors, the cost of capital, you know, the inflation interest, all of that's gone up. And people were finding it difficult to price these assets and buyers and sellers couldn't find and know what that price was. And so we found that this price discovery stage has really led to a pause in real estate. Anyone you spoke to and all the individuals that we that we talked to, it was about pens down, no more transactions, developments, the ones that are in process, we're going to continue, but we're not bringing anything on new. And so that was something that permeated throughout our, our discussion uh, with, with the executives uh, during, during this year. And I think we heard it also this morning, you know, that talk about pause. And I think that's going to continue. And I think Blake actually said, let's just wait and see, I think is the words he used in, in the report in the um, forum this morning. And I think that was a sentiment that most of the people we spoke to about. The other big, really big thing that came out was ESG. So the ESG drum has been beating for a long time, but this year that drumming was really, really loud. And, you know, there's a number of things that really drove that, you know, regulatory matters, creditors, investors, and even employees, right? Because of this big war on talent. And I think many executives found that this is becoming an even more critical item. So that I would say is the the second item that we talked about. And then third is just housing affordability. That crises, and that's what it is. Many people use the word crises that we're in, just continues to be, you know, get bigger and bigger. And and, and it's a real societal issue. And and it's it's something that, that we're not gonna get out of anytime soon. Decades or generations, probably, till you get to any sign of improvement. If ever, yeah. unfortunately. Well, yeah, exactly. That, well, it's funny. I mean, uh, the the owner of First National, Moritaz, was uh, circulating. One of the owners. One of the owners. The other one's yeah. Stephen Smith. You might have heard of him. He yeah. just bought a billion-dollar trust fund company. Yeah, making the news. But he circulated a, an article from, I think, like the 1910s, talking about Toronto affordability. How do we solve it? You know, And here we are, 100 years later, having the exact same conversation. Toronto population explodes to, you know, I make up numbers, half a million or whatever it is. And then just, it's been ongoing ever since. So I, I did read through the report and I want to ask you about a couple of points in it. So the big one that stood out to me as the lender, so I, I want to make it all about me, of course, because, you know, Aaron and I uh, spend all day thinking about uh, debt. The perception of availability in 2023 for debt radically shifted. And every single Absolutely. category you had acquisitions, refinances and construction, all of them, the sentiment largely, the, the dominant sentiment was that it's going to be an undersupply. Significantly. Uh, yeah. Significantly. And, 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 and then last year it would have been in favor of oversupply or balance somewhere in between. So it's a radical shift on the debt side. I mean, obviously Aaron and I can speak to the fact that, you know, that is true. A lot of lenders uh, have had a, you know, flight to quality as is kind of standard in most rocky scenarios. How much did that weigh in the conscience of the people that you're speaking with? How much did that come out? Because obviously, Aaron and I have to get out of our bubble where we think that it's the most important thing, but I'd love to hear the sentiment from the equity side. I think, you know, that was a very, very important point. And I think 
if you take a look at our report, we, we speak to it quite a bit. You know, clearly last year, the message was all about there was too much capital. And the fact that there was too much capital, it was pushing up prices, you know, in terms of the asset prices. And then you fast forward to this year and the opposite is true from the perspective of the individuals. And I think a lot of it has to do with what's just happened broadly. And so there was a clear, a clear sentiment from individuals that going forward, both the equity and debt markets were going to be significantly undersupplied. Like when you take a look at that chart that we have in the report, it shows a huge shift from last year to this year in terms of the supply of capital. And I, I think that that's just a function of what's happening in the marketplace right now in terms of the rates. And to your point, the flight to quality, it's not that capital's disappeared. You know, I think one of the interviewees that we talked to, I, I liked, and we use this quote in our report is, it's just moved to the sidelines. And, and it's, so it's, there's still lots of capital. It's just moved to the sidelines and it's really focused all around quality. And so it'll be interesting times, I believe, in the near future with respect to that. Well, in, in that same report, as you mentioned the equity as well. So the basic polling is oversupply, undersupply, or uh, balanced. So on the equity side, also last year, everybody thought it was oversupply. It shifted more to uh, balanced than it was a perception of undersupply. And I was a little surprised by that, especially given what we're talking about now, that the equity is taking a break, sitting on the sidelines, you know, whatever uh, terminology you want to use. I thought that that would have seen a similar shift into undersupply where balance seemed to be more the, the sentiment there. I think it's relative, right? If you would have taken, if you would have looked at it compared to last year, it's definitely moved to the left towards undersupply. So I think, you know, you talk to anyone in terms of providers of equity and debt into real estate, and they've clearly put a pens down approach right now. Any of the large pension funds, you know, the private capital, they've clearly done that. They're looking at all of the deals a lot more closely and really just focusing on those quality projects. So I think, Adam, you're right, it showed up as that. But I think if you compared the dots and, you know, the size, you could see that they shifted quite a bit. And it wouldn't take uh, much more turmoil in the market to move it into undersupply fully being the, the dominant. Sorry, Aaron, go ahead. Oh, I, I have an unfinished thought, and I <laughs> help me with this. And maybe this is totally wrong. It's curious what we're this conversation about, quite frankly, both equity and debt being undersupplied. It's that pens down concept, wait and see. Everybody's kind of, there's the uncertainty. So people right. are just deliberately going, I'm not sure what I'm getting myself into. Therefore, I'm not going to take that risk. On the equity side, and I don't play in that space, so maybe I'm ignorant, but there's a yield to risk return that's variable, significantly variable. We've seen that, right? At one point, it was you wanted a 20% yield, and there's lots of guys that are happy with a 10% yield. Even that's really hard to attain right now. So that it makes sense that that's why they're squeezed. On the debt side, it's a little bit different. Like our yields are actually not necessarily the net interest margins, but our, the all-in coupons are higher. So you'd think there'd be more availability of debt. But I think because that yield is so low, it's not a, it's not a function of not getting the right return. It's just we're more sensitive to the uncertainty. Am I making sense? Like it's, you think about the capital stack, that debt side, even though it's more return, better yield, the uncertainty keeps us even more paranoid and out of the marketplace than on the yield equity side. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying there is the, it's the uncertainty. It's the uncertainty that's weighing on, on, on both, right? Yeah. And I think that's what's driving, driving the behavior that we're seeing in the marketplace. Yeah, I'll tell you, on the, living as a lender, like we take no risk. So even if I can get an extra 50 basis points, it's, it's still not worth the risk because it's, it's such more significant risk. Total than, losses, worse right? outcome like than you, extra you 50 beats. You lend beeps. to get your money back, right? Yeah. So, Absolutely. Yeah. 
and the other thing, of course, is, you know, we're talking about supply to the market as a monolith, but, you know, it's not. The asset classes are going to see uh, wildly different interest. Uh, not that I want to reference anybody else's report while we're, of course, focusing on yours, but the, I didn't just take away from the uh, CBRE lenders report that just came out. And it showed that 93% of lenders want to increase volume next year, but then some other very large percentage of lenders wanted to decrease their exposure to office. So you go, well, how can everybody increase, you know, what they're doing? Overall is, of course, well, you're all going to funnel into apartments and you're going to funnel Come join into, us. into join industrial us apartments yeah. or multifamily. Uh, and, and multifamily's got its own barriers because, of course, you need yep. to be a CMHC lender. So really, yep. we're talking about industrial. And so, I mean, there you might see, you know, there you might be back to oversupply of uh, debt and equity because everybody's trying to increase their total volumes while funneling everything into a single uh, asset class. So it'll be a tale of uh, four cities, I guess, being, of course, the, the four main asset classes. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll edit out the part about the other the CBRE report. I apologize that's for bringing fine. that no, up. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have a six, Adam. I'm not insecure. <laughs> uh, you mentioned ESG is one of the big drivers in this year's you know sentiment, and so like the takeaway I saw there was the difference being is now the money cares about ESG. You know, a couple of years ago it was all the all the big players had their platforms and their plans, but now now it's becoming a capital requirement, and that's going to be a game changer, a needle mover in terms of Canada adopting to a country that cares about that. It could be more like Europe in that regards. That one really stood out to me. That's a big difference. Yeah, oh. I still have a problem with this ESG thing, Frank. I'm curious what your conversations with the, your C-suite levels are because it makes sense. Institutionally, institutional capital, institutional players, yes, it's stable stakes. It's in their policy. It's no longer just a talk thing. They've got to walk the walk too. But that's a small portion of real estate owners, ultimately. Yep. Yep. The mid-sized private market just don't necessarily have the motivation. How does that play itself out? Like, what do you think? I think it's going to be, that's going to be the differentiator. So you're absolutely right. The institutionals are all over it, have been for a while, really ramping up. And I do want to get back after on, on ESG about capital, because I think there were some pretty interesting things that came out of that in terms of pricing for capital. Okay, we'll go there next. And so we'll I, thought, next. I thought that's interesting, because at the end of the day, what came away in those conversations, and it plays into the privates are smaller, which we'll get to in a second, is that I think people have kind of pivoted. In the past, ESG was considered a cost. This is just an additional cost. I think many people have now kind of changed the narrative and said, look, this is actually a value preservation and a value creation opportunity. And you say, why? Well, because if you do it right, it, you're going to improve your cash flows overall. And if you improve the cash flows, and you can go through that whole scenario in terms of how you can improve the cash flows, well, rents, if you got greener buildings, you can probably get more rents. On the cost side, you have more efficiency in terms of your operating costs. It reduces that. You're going to get better cost of borrowing. And there's some empirical evidence that shows that, that we have from uh, Europe, that it's up to 40 basis points on average if you're doing it well. So you get a better cost of capital. And therefore, your cash flows improve. So, you know, it's just going to make your business that more valuable. So I would say that when we talked to the privates, because that's your question, a few years ago, you're absolutely right. The idea is, you know what, if I do this, am I going to be able to sell more houses? No, that was their conclusion. But I think what we found is when we actually interviewed the privates, and I talk about the ones at the upper end of the privates, they saw this as a huge opportunity on all sorts of fronts from a capital perspective because they're tapping in bigger sources of capital and they don't want to be left on the sidelines. 
because, you know, the banks, they have to meet their requirements. And so now all of a sudden they're going to be moving their capital and they're going to say, oh, you're a good ESG person. Okay, we'll lend to you. You're a bad ESG person. Well, maybe we're not going to lend to you. So that's kind of one thing. Secondly, the important piece, and I kind of lost my train of thought there. Someone was waving to me as they were going yeah, by over here. The blinders, the blinders on. on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to do that. But that whole cost of capital is an important discussion. But the privates, yes, we were talking about the privates. They felt that they're going to be able to differentiate themselves because what was really interesting in talking to one CEO, one of our largest uh, home developers, they said this is about also retaining key talent. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, we need to have a really strong vision about how our company addresses ESG because it's important to that talent. And so they see that as also a value retention, attracting of key talent, you know, clearly on the capital side, which we talked about as being important. So I think that that narrative is changing even for the privates. Clearly, it's all relative. There's going to be those that are at the bottom end of the scale that still think it's a cost and are not going to be involved. But I would say that those that are at the top end of the private market are really moving. I can tell you, as PwC, we are actually doing more work now with some privates on ESG. And I would never have thought that we would be doing that right now because that's how important they see this topic Well, and I guess I'm happy to hear that because that makes sense. Like ESG the language came into our lexicon six years ago, seven years ago. And I think it's taken that much time for it to kind of permeate through the industry. And now it's starting to become standard. Like it's just it's yeah. necessary, a necessity. Yeah. The awareness and, phase is coming and gone yeah. and it's there's implementation. Still, there's still yeah. some people that don't, believe it or not, understand it. And, and, and so that's always kind of enlightening when I, what is ESG? And that's happened a few times. But I think, you know, there's a lot of things driving it. You probably may or may not be aware, but there's regulations that are coming now. So the, both yeah. the SEC, the International Accounting yeah. Standards Board are going to make it for these public companies that they're going to have to report on it. So that's like square in there. There's regulators, you know, investors. You heard CPPIB, I think it was a few weeks ago that came out and said, by the way, if you're not a good ESG person, we're not going to be providing any capital to you. Like that was, you know, so you've got investors that are talking about that. You've got regulators that are pushing that. You have the employees that are basically telling demanding you that, it, yeah. demanding it. So to ignore it, I think it's at the peril of many organizations, yeah. is yeah, my view. That, that and sense. that's what we heard from the executives. And that's why I'm saying that beating drum was really, really loud this year around that area. We had a, uh, a previous guest on, and I'm going to give credit to, I think, Catherine Marshall, although I'm only about 80% sure it was her who said this, but she's been on, and this is her area of expertise, and she listed capital, prioritizing it being the second biggest needle mover. Uh, you just mentioned regulatory. She said regulatory will be the thing that moves it the most. Of course, just top-down dictating to the market, but capital demanding it is going to be the second biggest driver of it, a little more organic driver of it. Yeah. You know, the question is here in North America right now, and I'd love to get your views as well, that hasn't been priced in. So you're not necessarily going to get a benefit for being a, a, a what I'd call an ESG good citizen in the pricing of your of your debt. I don't. Well, it's, CMHC Select. Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. there's one category. Yeah, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, there's fair CMHC enough. Select, which is yeah. really more an affordability tool yeah. than, than energy efficiency yeah. or, or environmental, but it, it and it's not really tied to carbon or decarbonization. Right. It's really right. just tied to improving the, the efficiency of the building. There is an ESG bond through the Canada Housing Trust CMHC coming, and that's yeah. coming soon. And so that will be, I think, the yeah. start, at least on the apartment yeah. side. Conventionally, though, I do not believe that 
the conventional lenders, the banks, the life insurance companies, the pension funds have really built in a ESG discount into their algorithms, right? You're not typing in the metrics and going, yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, lead platinum, therefore nine basis points off. I don't think that happens yet. So, so I would agree with you here in North America, but I'll share with you the study that was done in, in Europe that basically benchmarked a whole bunch of organizations, plotted them against, you know, whether they were solid ESG or not, and compared their costs and cost of capital, and there was a clear delineation. Yeah. And so, and so I think we're going to see that for on a number of, and the wave is going to, and the wave is going to come. Yeah. Here. No, frankly, yeah, hundred percent right. It's coming. It has yeah, to. It, yeah. it, it can't. You can't avoid it. And I do know of one fund that plays in the conventional space, but they're getting a lot of pressure from their pension fund overlords saying we want more green. Right. And they're out there trying to figure out how to do it and having a really challenging time figuring out how to ma- match it together. It's, it's not simple. Because how do you know one green... What, well, here's the way to do it. Do it a 10-year term, and it's green today, but in three years from now, for whatever reason, it's not green based on whatever thresholds. Do you change the interest rate? You don't. You're kind of pot committed at that point, right? Yeah. So there's some of these things that are, that are just you know, Very challenging. Very interesting, yeah. Okay, let's move on to affordability because we're going to run out of time really quick, and that was number two on your list, yeah. right? And, and so, I've got a hot take on affordability, okay, go, but go. okay, okay. So... There's a chart in the, the report that highlights affordability and it breaks down city by city. And if you look at Toronto and Vancouver, that part of the graph just flies all the way to the right side of the page. You know, it's a uh, horizontal graph. And the other cities, you know, by comparison are, you know, a fraction of it. And this is measuring, I think, percentage of median income or something like that. So the further over to the right you are, the more of your median income you're chewing up with your rent. If you were to remove Toronto and Vancouver from the conversation around affordability in Canada as a gigantic monolith again, is a, f- a lack of affordability that pronounced? Yes. Okay. 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 End of <laughs> no, podcast. Thanks for coming, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really interesting. We've had that chart in, in our report for a number of years, and it actually goes back to the U.S. firm that was doing this as well. And they were showing migration patterns and comparing it to affordability. And what they were showing is how certain of these cities, you know, come about tertiary cities or secondary cities, they call them the 18-hour cities, how they were continuing to grow. And what's happened though, is that the affordability, which is no surprise, as more people go there and more demand for the product drives prices up, it's no surprise that that happened. We've been witnessing that in Canada as well. And at the beginning of the pandemic, Everybody kind of left the cities, headed for the suburbs, bought the homes. Now I can work from home. I don't have to worry about the commute. And it's pushed up the prices considerably in these areas. And so we've seen as people are avoiding what we call MTV, you know, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver because of how expensive it is. And they're starting to move to the Halifaxes and other, other kind of secondary cities. The affordability issue there is continuing to climb. And in that chart, you could see it. And so that's the part that that has kind of spread, not just on housing prices, but rentals. It's, it's covering that. So it's now where I think you're right. It was really focused in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver in the past. But that affordability issue has now moved. It's not as, as, as acute, but it clearly is an issue. And we're seeing that. Maybe I, this is off topic, but is there... An easier or is it easier to raise incomes outside of Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver? Like I, I assume, and I'm just ignorant to this, but 
incomes in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver are higher than those levels. So those metrics are a bit off because you're just, yeah. if, it's a, it's a, if it's a byproduct of income levels, yeah. there's, there's more growth to keep it more affordable in those sort of, you know, the, the non-MTV locations. Yes, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> like, must be. I mean, I yeah, understand hypothesize, right? It's, like, it's it got to be. Yeah, I would, I would assume sense. a job yeah. in Toronto, yeah, the sure. exact same job in Halifax, is not the same. It's income. not. It's not. It's, it, it's by virtue you know, of the fact that it's less yeah. affordable here. Exactly. But but what's happening? What you're finding in those areas is that as people move there because they can't afford a place, it's pushing up those prices and it's putting that pressure on that debt. You know, right. Oh yeah, issue, for sure. Right? Yeah. You, but presumably income's gonna be increasing there too. It, uh, I guess it'll have squeezing, to squeezing <laughs> squeezing the businesses, the small business owners. Guess, it'll have to. A hundred years from now, are we having the same conversation? Assuming yes. we live that long? <laughs> and, the, and rhyming off the exact same reasons why affordability is it's it's a simple supply and demand. And I you know, we had this in our report as well. And I think Ben Tal this morning at the forum also made a similar comment. So by 2030, we're projected to, in Canada, have 2.3 million units. I think it was CMHC that came out with a report that says in order to stabilize the affordability issue and, and create this, they, we needed an additional 3.5 million units on top of that. There's no possible way that we'll be able to do that. So continue to bring in a half million people each year. Like you said, you don't need to be a rocket scientist on what's going to happen. And so that's why I think we need, and what we heard is we need really innovation. We need innovation about thinking about supply in a different way. If we think well, we're going to solve this supply by just punching out more condos and punching out more single-family homes, which, by the way, we don't have the capacity to do. I think uh, Ben quoted that 80,000, and that's about right here in Ontario. I think it's 150 across. We just don't have the capacity to meet up with the demand. So we're always going to be behind. Increasingly so, behind. Increasingly behind, exactly. And so we need to find different ways to create the supply. And that's, that's what I think, you know, is going to set, I think, Canada apart if we can do that. We need innovators. We need the government. We need private to come together. We need technology to come together and really solve this problem in a totally different way, not in the traditional way. Otherwise, I don't think we'll ever get there. I don't want to jump into it because it's its own topic and Aaron and I will do an episode on uh, Bill 23, but you know, we have seen some big moves by at least one provincial government to try and uh, solve it and it'll be interesting to see it uh, once it's implemented. But I will throw that out there that you know we are seeing some move from the government. That's a 45-minute conversation in and of itself. Well, you know, on the government side, they have done a lot of stuff. You know, they've given mayors superpowers to kind of try and block the delays on permitting, right? So they've done a number of things. You know, they're allowing multiple units now in, in, in dwellings. So they're doing, they're kind of doing things, tweaking things around the fringes. But is that really going to have a meaningful effect? No, it'll, it'll help address a little bit, but it's not going to have a meaningful impact. But you're right. Like, okay, so they said, yes, we want to build another million and a half units. And we're going to open up land to do that. That's great, but we just don't have the capacity to build it. So that's not going to help us any. Yeah, can't attract and, and, the trades. And then to add on top of that, given what's happening right now, what we're seeing is many developers are saying, well, stuff we talked about at the beginning of the show, well, I'm going to hold, I'm not going to launch anything now. I'm going to hold back. I'm waiting and seeing yeah. where this all lays out. Guess what happens? That just creates more pressure, more pressure. on the supply oh, by side. The way, right? yeah, all the, it, yeah, interest rates are up. Finding the people to build these things in the first place. I mean, we, yeah. again, there's another 45-minute conversation just about the availability of <laughs> labor supply. Labor supply, right? A huge issue. It's a, something we talk about extensively as well in our report about labor supply because we never really talked about that. And that's, you know, when I go to our real estate clients, our developers, and I ask them, you know, the one thing they say is, I can't find people. 
Well, he was number yeah, one on people. your chart, I think, for yeah. under the development category, his biggest yeah. concern. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I can't find people. So. Yeah, we have, we have Altus on fairly regularly, and, and Marlon Braze, he always says, like, the problem is you got your A team, your B team, and then your X team and Y team, because there's just <laughs> such a difference in, in skill set, because yeah. you're, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel just to get your groups going through, and that's that obviously creates delays, creates scheduling impacts, you know. It's, I wonder what listeners are wondering which team they're on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, A team for sure. Yeah. We got about five minutes left, so I wanted to jump into one more investment topic before we let you go here. In the report, it mentioned that the trend of large institutional capital increasing their overall exposure to real estate, it's been ongoing for years, might reverse. You know, I think it's creeped up over the years where it used to be kind of 8 9%, now 20% standard for some of the big pension funds. And the comment in the report is that you might see a reversal of that, that uh, what real estate is doing right now, that might decrease. So is that to the benefit of the privates? Are we going to see the, the rise of the privates again, you know, reclaiming territory in, the, in the, the monopoly game we all play for a living? No, I think where that comment came around, and, and I think you know, even Blake talked about it this morning, and there, the, the allocation, I think, was closer to 15 and some at, at closer to 20 in terms of the real estate for pension funds, if that's what you're referring yes, to. Yes, yeah. And I think where that came from, if memory serves me right, in terms of the interviews, was as the equity markets have been pummeling, coming down, it's really put real estate out of sync in terms of their capital allocation, you know, because the relative values haven't moved as much. And so now, all of a sudden, they're out of their allocation. And so the concept was some might need to reallocate and move some of that out of real estate into other areas to kind of get back to their portfolio. So we said we could probably see that. Long term, and I think I'd agree with what Blake was saying as well, is I don't see that changing significantly at this stage. But that was something that was brought up by a couple of people saying that that could be an additional pressure on pricing for real estate. Because if funds can't get their ratios increased and allocations increased, they may be required to kind of dispose of some assets. And then you don't want to be on that side and causes reduction in prices potentially, right? If there's too much coming up. And if there aren't the buyers at the right price that you need. Right. And so so that's where that comment was coming from. And with a lot of the REIT sideline too, of course, it's uh, tough to sell the kind of assets well, they yeah. want to sell because well, they're usually back to the uncertainty. If we're sitting here 2020, talking about the 2024 trends and we're in the exact same scenario, maybe you do start having that squeeze. Like I think they can, yeah. short term, they can weather the storm and hope that it comes back on side. At some point, they've got to pull the trigger, but it's not today. Yeah, right? it's, it's, you touched on the REITs. Like they're in a really tough spot right now when you think about it, right? They can't raise equity. Unit prices well below. Hard to you know, given where the yields are and what people want from a pricing and, you know, trying to get the debt, numbers aren't going to work there. No. So how do you grow? And people buy it for growth, right? Like that's, yeah. that's a real issue. Buy back shares. Well, that's what they're buy, all doing. buy back or you got to recycle capital, get rid of the old stuff and hopefully put in like, but it's, it's, it's challenging. It's, it's def- definitely challenging. Sit and wait. If you're a read, you're, you're <laughs> sitting heavily, right? waiting long. Yeah, unfortunately. Frank, it's always a pleasure having you on. Four appearances. That would put you in uh, probably our top three or four yeah, most Ray repeat yes. at like nine or ten yeah. so that is, you know, you're yeah. close there <laughs> yeah but uh, we do appreciate you coming by every year look forward to next year you know we'll do the 2024 um, but enjoy the rest of the conference it's, uh, it's been great having you back on thanks to uh, of course to First National for powering the podcast and to the Real Estate Forums for letting us do this here today at the Toronto Real Estate Forum you can find the report in notes or type in if you go to PwC and then uh, just type in PwC ETRE 2023. Cool. Yeah, yeah. it's a great read. Recommend it. You got to go and read it. And this is, it's always awesome to talk to you guys. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for coming on.
Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where Adam and I talk about the conversation we just had with Frank Magliocco. That's the sixth year, seventh year we've been doing this with the trends. I haven't really, and I really should, I'd love to go back and look at the six, seven years, because these are all forward-looking theories of what the C-suite executives in our industry are thinking is going to happen in the future. And I, I'm sure they're not always right or not always wrong. The one that I think would be really interesting to track is just the number of times the letters E, S, and G show up. And if six, seven years ago, it really was just, because they have that one, I don't remember what page it's on, of like trends, like what's the most important thing? And I'd love to see where ESG has moved because it's clear now it's table stakes for everybody. And we've heard that said and we've talked about it so many times. We've had so many panels about or podcasts about ESG. It was validation though to hear that in this emerging trend, this very sophisticated collection of opinions and thoughts from our decision makers, our leaders in our industry, all of them are putting this as, this is something that we have to be focused on. Well, if you want to use that report as the barometer, ESG, I'd have to think back to the year prior, but this year, the report kind of breaks out the graphs, which we always like looking at, but they also include a written component. And so there, they'll really focus in on the highlights and ESG to get its own entire section in the Canada-specific area of the report. So if you want to use that as a prominence barometer, it's more and more forward in that report, just as everywhere else. I'm sure that if you and I could scan the audio of our last 300 podcasts and you were to graph out the number of times we said the words ESG, it would be hockey sticking over the last you know 18 yeah. months. Yeah. We talked about it in the podcast, but of course we're lenders. And so we really want to think about it. The shift in capital availability, like clearly it's still there, especially on the equity side, balanced, undersupplied in debt. But when I say undersupplied, it's 60% of people thought that, meaning a lot don't. It's not a completely lopsided equation. And you're coming off of a flood of capital for the last number of years. So it could all be relative just compared to how it was previously. There's still capital out there, but that would be a big takeaway that people that are just counting on capital availability should probably really make sure they have that button down before proceeding on projects. Yeah, the whole theme of uncertainty, right? Through the trends, through the report, and just that uncertainty driving a lack of decision-making, I guess. Because it's so hard to make a decision if you don't know what the future holds. Yeah, I had a borrower say that on a construction loan we were looking at, and he's been building for decades. And he goes, we've done the highs and the lows. And you know, our project still works at current interest rates, current being you know elevated since March. It's just, what if 2024? What if they go up another 150? Well, you know, that project's starting to get to the point where maybe it doesn't work. Well, they go up 200. Well, now we're in trouble. And that was his major sticking point. He's like, I'm okay with where they are now. It's just, I don't want to build for three and a half years with this risk that they may blow out another 200 basis yeah, points. Yeah, it's funny because there's always that risk, but... In good times, you have to take that risk because you assume the chance is so infinitesimally small. Are you waiting for the perfect moment? If you started building in 2020 when interest rates were sub 2%, if you're just dictating your decisions on interest rates, that is the most ideal time to start because you have some incredibly low interest rates. And if it's a multi-year project, you could now be completing into a 4% interest rate environment yeah. and you took the lowest risk point. Which many people are, unfortunately. But it's the reality of development, right? The yields are commensurate with the risk, right? That's why you make the great returns in the good times and you may not make those great returns in the bad times. Hopefully it's just okay returns in the yeah, bad times. Exactly. Like that's like everybody it, can live with that. And it's temporary and it's near term and in the midterm, everything goes back to unicorns and roses. And as long as you were building industrial or multifamily, at least your rents are outperforming whatever you underwrote three or four years ago. Yeah, if there's the other one, <laughs> sorry. Sorry for your luck. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's it for the Frank Magliocco after show. It's always one of the annual favorites. You look forward to having him again on next year. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.